0: that we're learning so much about. First Peter chapter two today, beginning in verse 18. When our boys were young, sometimes we would communicate to them the essential truth of learning submission, learning how to be submission in submission. Now they didn't appreciate the lessons on how to be submissive and I struggled to teach them well But I believe that their lives would work out better if they learned early how to be submissive. Because there were lessons in life that needed to be learned and if they were gonna be good employees, they were gonna be good church members, if they were gonna be good followers of Jesus Christ, they would have to learn how to submit. We all have to learn how to submit. The lessons are still continuing today I I realize that as we're working through 1 Peter, those lessons are just over and over and over. So ideally, the Holy Spirit is teaching all of us lessons on submission. What it's like to be submissive to the Spirit. What it's like to be submissive to the sovereign God, to the Lord, to the King of kings, and the Lord over all lords. And you and I have come to discover in our life in Christ that being submissive is really a foundational aspect of being in relationship with God. We must realize that God is the owner of all things and all things are for his glory. And we come underneath that. Our lives are not for our own selves. Our lives are for him and for his glory. Now, God makes this demand throughout the scripture. Uh, We read about it in James, if you'll watch on the screens. James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Look what he says in verse 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now the word submit in the Greek New Testament comes from this root word, hupotasso, which means to have someone who's willing to come underneath submissively the command of somebody else. So we, we get that pretty easily when we think about someone coming under the command of a commanding officer if they're in the military That's the same word that Peter is using in this text of today and James used in the passage that I just read to you. He's saying to us, be submissive to Christ. And in the submission that we have, coming underneath his authority and his rule, he has placed governing ways over us, the government itself, be submissive to government. We talked about that last week. Today we're going to talk about being submissive to our employers And then next week we'll talk about the the family submission and what that looks like and how God has ordered things. Now the word submission is challenging to a teenager who is growing up in a preacher's house. But I'm going to tell you it's pretty challenging for the preacher himself. We all struggle with being under submission. Uh, I've caught myself multiple times this week just working around the roads and uh, being incredulous over a 35 mile an hour zone when it ought to be about 50 miles an hour. I'm like, that doggone trap right there. And, you know, I just struggle with that. You struggle with that. And we all tend to have that in our flesh. Uh, And the world has that. Certainly the culture around us is trying to impress us that you don't have to be submissive to anything. The world is questioning authority like I've never seen it before and it's just constantly coming against the authorities that God has placed over us. And that's because the world values autonomy. They want freedom. They wanna make their own way. They wanna have their own rules that they establish, which might shift multiple times throughout their lives, but they certainly don't want moral absolutes and they don't want restrictive moral laws. The world, especially in the culture of the U.S., Cherishes individual rights, and we fight as a country for individual rights, insisting on our rights to to pursue happiness. The cultural cultural demands today are really odd there's a there's a desire to not be submissive even to natural laws, laws that God has put into place, or they want to be um, not submissive even to biological laws, just laws that are true in science now are suddenly questioned and history is questioned and language is shifting and societal structure that God has put in place that we might have order and function well as a society. All of that is being questioned and very few in the culture want to be submissive to any of that. So outside the church, many people are denying God, his existence, his word, his commands, and his judgment. And at the root of all that is this unwillingness to submit to anything, to not come under the authority of God. At its most elementary level, not only do they not believe in God, they will not be thankful to him. And if they're not thankful to him, then they will abdicate from every law and governance that he has given to them to live in a healthy, blessed way. It's just the way of the world. Now, on the other hand, you and I are learning how to live submissively unto the glory of God. We are learning to submit as God has instructed us. And we're not just learning that. We're learning to love it and embrace it. The real freedom for us is found when we submit to God. And that seems weird to the world, but our freedom is greater when we submit to the sovereign God and we walk in his fellowship. So we see that lining up under the authorities that God has put in place on this earth proves that we have a greater hope than this world. It proves to us that we have a sovereign above us. And he has established a spiritual kingdom that will one day be physical. And our sight is set there rather than here. And so we will submit today knowing that God says this is what he desires of us. And he's moving us to a more perfect order. So let's look at today's text. It's in chapter 2 of 1 Peter beginning in verse 18. Read it along with me if you will. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is one of those texts that if we were not going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I probably wouldn't pick it in order to preach it this morning because there are others that seem to be a little bit more joyful to preach. Uh, Not that the scripture in any way is subject. It it is not to our fickle likes or dislikes, but this is God's word for us. Now, obviously, if you're like me and you read this text, you kind of have a little bit of a struggle with it because when we hear words like servants and master and beaten, uh, we have uh, a history of the 17th, 18th, and early 19th century that is not good uh, using those same words. So those words have baggage to us. And we sort of need to unpack that a little bit, take that off, and, and get into the context as Peter has written this. Because on the surface, this doesn't quite compute to us. With the baggage that we have, the historical baggage that we have of American history and really world history... This idea of being a servant to your master who may treat you right or may not treat you very justly, who may beat you, who, who may beat you for doing what is bad or might beat you for doing what is, what is good, and that somehow that in enduring is a gracious thing to God, which could sort of be translated God is smiling on you, that just doesn't compute. Anybody else with me struggling with that? It's just hard to figure out exactly what Peter is doing in, in writing this. So, before tackling that issue, let me just take some things off the table. Some things that I think are just essential for us to get if we're going to understand today's text. And the first is this, that the Bible forbids ever enslaving people. We just need to get that out there. That he is not talking about slavery like what the American history has experienced. This is not in any way talking about that because God absolutely forbids that. In first Timothy chapter one verse eight, Paul is writing to us about the law and why the law is essential for us. And he's basically saying the law is for sinners. It helps to identify sin. Now let's let's read it. It'll be on the screens for you. Uh, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient. Hey, by the way, the the law has not been given for you and me today in our walk of grace in Christ. The law was given prior to us understanding the need for grace and mercy in Christ. The law is identifying sin in our life. Uh, it, It helps us to understand the sin that we were born in and the consequence of that and the justice that's required because of it. And so Paul is just expressing that, that it's for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. I mean, that's a, that's a group of identified people, right? Every one of us were born in that. Every one of us were born in that. And if it were not for us being given new life in Jesus Christ, we would remain in that. But to God's grace and glory, he has transformed us by faith in Jesus. All right, so here's who who Paul is sort of lumping into this, this ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So an enslaver is someone who captures a person to sell them into slavery. And according to God's word and instruction, slavery in that way is always a sin It's against the teaching of the Bible and the gospel. And enslavers are actually lumped together in this group that Paul identifies as lawless, disobedient, ungodly, unholy, and profane. It's against everything that God stands for and calls for us to live in. So, when we think about slavery in the area of our history as a country... We recognize that it is an atrocity. It's a sin against God and mankind. It's reprehensible to the gospel and the word of God. And it's certainly atypical of someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. It is not to be in in any way part of our life. But still we have to ask, so why is Peter talking about servants and masters? Why is this in the New Testament? Why is it written here, and what, what is it with the respect of that? Well, we need to understand a little bit of history of the Roman Empire and know that there are three classes of individuals that live within the empire. And, and first is the Roman citizen, and that person has full rights and protections under Roman law. If you were wanting to be anybody, it was you wanted to be a Roman citizen if you were living in the empire. The second were the freedmen or freedwomen, people who had actually earned or probably bought their freedom, which was a a provision that most had opportunity to. And they would have certain protections in the law that were much more more broadly given. There were some restrictions, like you couldn't hold a public office if you were a freedman in the Roman Empire, but you pretty much had all the, the citizens' rights offered to you. And the third class was the servant class and that class included mostly foreigners who were brought into the empire in slavery and they were the ones who worked and managed the households of their master. The word that's used in this particular text is rooted in the same word that means household duty. Uh, So it, it, it stands that the servants were those who worked in the house. Or in the field or they managed in some way some aspect of the family life in fact you could be a servant as a doctor to the family and so you could be the one who's out working the field or nursing the family to help you were a servant in that class Now, as the gospel is spreading through the Roman Empire and people are coming to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and coming into the church, many of those converts were the servant class there in the empire. So, there are numerous passages in the New Testament that actually instruct the servant class How to live in their life in the Roman Empire and live in the kingdom of God. And how you could honor Christ and how you could have a great life in God's kingdom, spiritual kingdom. And know that one day, one day the physical kingdom will come and everything will be reset. Everything will be transformed, changed. So the position of the servant would remain constant in the empire, but their spiritual position is going to change wildly when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. They would be saved forever, transformed, they would have a spiritual citizenship of heaven, they would have an eternal inheritance that had been granted to them, secured for them, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and they had a oneness with the body of Christ. In fact, you could actually have somebody who was an elder of the church who was a servant of someone who is also a member of the same church. Interesting dynamics there within the kingdom and the church. And so the the writers of the New Testament are having to deal with those very difficult circumstances. I think this reality helps us to recognize that the church is a unified body that's made up of varied members uh, we are so wide in our diversity of uh, people. Uh, the church should be widely diverse in race. Uh, we ought to constantly move towards that. How do we have a greater expression of the kingdom of God in the worship hour here on Sunday morning? We ought to have multiple races ought to be in congregation and gathering together. We ought to actively seek that. It's the way it's going to be in heaven, and it's certainly be should be the way that we picture that today the diversity of races the social and economic levels vary in our congregation and it should be that way we ought, we ought to embrace all people of all various strata of living in culture and we have an assortment of gifts and talents and abilities and skills and experiences and the spirit of god is just perfect at bringing us together a very diverse group of people coming together in oneness And this is the mantra of the New Testament regarding the church, is it not? I mean, Ephesians declares this, probably one of the greater expressions of what life should be like in the church. It says, there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So, we are one. It was the same way in the century of the Roman Empire had a very diverse congregation but they were one in Christ. And there was no separation. Now there's no legal parallel position in the United States that comes alongside of what Peter is writing about here in this text. There's nothing that we have that's legal that directly associates with the servant position of 1 Peter chapter 2. Still the most common expression of work life in the Roman Empire was that. A master servant position so we can take those same truths that Peter is expressing to that relationship and we can bring them into our most common relationship regarding work the employer employee and we can take those biblical truths and apply them in that way as our culture expresses it and that's what I want to do today I want to take a little bit liberty to do that and challenge us in our employee and employer relationships so let's look at the biblical lessons and the imperatives. Uh, I spotted three pretty quickly and easily this week, and I want to share those with you today. And the first is this. Be submissive and respectful to your boss, whether they treat you well or unjustly. Now that sort of virgin, it? <laughs> uh, you, doesn't it? You don't like that little last part. I didn't either, and I kind of want to strike that out and just say I'm going to do good those, to those who do good to me. I'm going to treat people well who treat me people well as, as somebody who's treated well. That is not what the Scripture gives to us. The Scripture tells us to obey in all ways, trusting that the sovereign God is going to bless us for that. So the Scripture says that You and I need to be submissive and respectful to our boss, whether they treat us well or they don't. So as long as we are employed, we are to be submissive and respectful to the authority that God has placed over us. Now, perhaps every boss or every employer who is hearing that is glad to hear that God makes such a requirement. But let me remind you that you should make it easy for them to do so. Let me remind you that you, as a boss or employer, represent Jesus Christ that you represent the kingdom of God, that you represent this church. And how you associate with your people, the demeanor you have to them, the language you use to them, the way they feel after the conversation that you have with them, directly represents Jesus himself. And so you ought to recognize that and I ought to recognize that at all times. That you and I will give an account for every word and every action that we have had with those that God has put us in authority over in the workplace. So surely we know that God is so mindful of his chosen people that he's adopted into his family. Surely we know that God is paying significant attention to them and he is recording every detail as it is unfolding Therefore, we ought to treat our employees well. We ought to treat them with goodness and grace. And we ought to represent Christ in this church well as we engage them. And if you're employed, you and I are told to be subject to our boss and respect them. And if they're filled with the spirit and goodness, be subject to them and respect them. And if they walk in the flesh and they treat you poorly, respect them and be submissive to them because that's the commands of God. And the Lord makes this commands on us because it is our primary relationship with Him that is being tested. It's not the relationship with your boss that's going on there. It's a greater relationship. It's can you trust and keep your focus on Jesus in the midst of that trouble? Can you believe that he is sovereign? Can you believe that he is the one who will discipline? Can you believe that he will vindicate, that he will bring justice, that he will have a great reset in the future? Can you, can you represent him well in the suffering? Can you share in the fellowship with Christ in the suffering? Can you do that? And by his spirit, he says, oh, yes, you can. You be submissive to me and I'll work through you. This is your call. This is your vocation. I I couldn't help but think of just some examples this week. When you think about David and his submission to Saul, who was his king, even though Saul was just brutal to him, tried to kill him on multiple occasions, and yet David was just respectful and submissive to him. He had opportunity to take his revenge, but he said, no, who am I to do that against God's chosen, God's anointed? I'm not going to do that. Uh, You couldn't help but think about Joseph in this. Joseph, if you remember, was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And a man named Potiphar bought him. And if you remember, he was the servant over Potiphar, his master. And Potiphar's wife had a real interest in, in Joseph, who was a good-looking, well-built man, the Bible says. And she made prompting to him, wanting him to get into an affair with her. And he was constantly resistant of that rejecting that because he served God and he wanted to honor and respect his master Potiphar and finally she caught him in a position that she could turn the tables of his rejection and she acted as if he actually forced himself on her it didn't happen but she made that false allegation out of her anger for him not submitting to her promptings and Potiphar had him thrown into jail and that lasted for years you remember all that, and in the midst of that, God is reminding us in that text of Genesis that God was with him, that God blessed him. What do you mean God blessed him? God blessed him in the, in the prison. I don't think that that meant that he had royal treatment. Now he's still a prisoner. Still under the submission of the jailer. Still under the authority of Potiphar. And of course you remember the narrative he was forgotten by people who promised that they wouldn't forget him when they got reinstalled in, or he got reinstalled back into his position. But then over time, a number of years, there was a dream that the Pharaoh had and, and uh, it was called upon that Joseph would come and share the meaning of the dream. And as that unfolds, Joseph gets put in a very promising position But I want you to recognize he's still subject to his master. He might be the number two man in charge of the whole country, but he is still subject to Pharaoh. He is still enslaved. And all the while we get the image that Joseph is respectful and submissive regardless. Why? Because he trusted God's sovereignty. He recognized what people meant for evil, God meant for good, and he would bring life to others, even in this very difficult circumstance. Now, if you're one who studies the Old Testament, which we ought to all study the Old Testament, we realize pretty quickly that Joseph is actually a type of Christ in the Old Testament. In other words, he is revealing to us what Jesus is gonna be like when Jesus came to minister here on earth. And so if you were a Hebrew who is knowing the narrative of Joseph, you would be able to identify Jesus when he came to minister here on earth because you could discover what he would be like as Joseph was like that. Now, you and I look back and we say, okay, that's what Jesus was like when he was here. He suffered persecution, yet was respectful and submissive. If that's what he was like and all those types were like that, then that's what I ought to be like. So we recognize those truths that Though people are treated unjustly and unfairly, they have confidence that God is sovereign, that he will bring things to completion. Now, we would do well not to base our understanding of God's presence and promises based on our experiences. So if you're in a very difficult workplace and you wonder where's the presence of God, stop wondering that. I'll tell you where the presence of God is in the midst of your very difficult workplace. He's right there with you. He is right beside you. He is in the midst of that. The Bible actually says it's like he camps right there by you in the midst of the trouble. We see that throughout the text. So the presence of God and the promises of God are not being weighed Based on the fairness and goodness of others who are acting towards us in a certain way. God is with us. So be respectful. Be submissive to your boss when they treat you well or when they don't treat you very well. Look at the second thing. Subjective and respectful Christian employees are mindful of Christ as they express grace to their boss. In other words, their thought is on Christ. Our expressions of grace actually come from God pouring grace into us. So any measure of grace that I give at any time is because God has already given grace to me. He's pouring. Same thing with love. Any measure of love that we might be able to give is because God has filled our heart with love and he's loved us first. Same thing with mercy. Same thing with forgiveness. All the characteristics of God that are available to us and given to us are poured into us and expressed. So grace is one of those So Jesus has poured grace into us and that is the means by which we can successfully be gracious to people who are not very gracious to us. So do not raise your hand because I have staff in this room. If you've got a jerk for a boss, who are you? (laughs) When people treat you in a way that a boss would be labeled a jerk, God is pouring out grace in that moment that you might respond in grace and you say well that person doesn't deserve it N- no probably not but Jesus does and you're representing him this is all about how you represent him how you demonstrate the grace of Christ that has been given to you how you reflect that how you give that how you're in exchange of that how is that going in your life does anybody walk away from that employer-employee relationship and say there's something different about that lady? There's something different about him. He doesn't respond like other people do. She doesn't respond like others. So look again back in 1 Peter chapter two, verse nineteen. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Now, how do you how do you do this? How do you how do you uh, extend grace? you have your focus on god mindful of god in the midst of that mindful of god for what credit is it when you sin if you're beaten and you endure it or what 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 is it when it's good and you suffer and endure that's a gracious thing that's what that is that's a gracious thing in the sight of god or let me just identify a few things right here first you and I need to look to Jesus at all times, especially when we are experiencing sorrow and suffering, and those come at, at a time when it's unjustly exercised towards us. So if you do something wrong and you have to pay retribution for that, if you do something wrong you're punished for that, you're disciplined for that, okay, what, what good is that? You, you deserve that, right? But here the text is saying... When you actually do good and you endure suffering, God has his eyes on you. God is insightful to that. And God is is in the midst of that. So the world looks upon us and sees a gracious thing when Christian employees subject themselves respectfully to their bosses. Even while they're suffering an injustice. And God looks upon us. And those demonstrations when we are gracious and he smiles. Now, as I said, some of you have bosses that are kind and considerate. And others have bosses that are the opposite of that. Some of you work in great work environments and others are in desperate places. However, don't let your boss dictate whether you're going to show God's grace or not. Just reveal God's grace. Reveal his goodness. Reveal his life. And see how he will bless you in that. We're trusting in the sovereign God. We're we're recognizing that God is seeing all things. And he will reward us when we respond in the spirit and the spirit's nature. And if necessary, he will vindicate his own. He will bring justice. It might be in this lifetime. It most certainly will be in the lifetime to come. You're just trusting in the sovereign God and you're exercising in that. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote similarly about this subject over in Ephesians chapter 6. Watch the screen, if you will. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. If you're one to underline, and you're going to look this up in your scripture, you might just underline and circle that. As you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So here's this broad exercise. If you're free or you're a slave, Paul is saying, do your work unto the Lord and God will reward you. Just let your boss be Jesus. First and foremost, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So it's sort of laying that out for employer and employee. You ought to be living in a way that you're focused on Christ and all that you're doing is an exercise of God's goodness in you. So, Christian employees are to perform their jobs unto the Lord, and Christian bosses ought to lead their employees submitted to Jesus Christ. All right, number three, are you zoning out on me? Number three will help you to zone back in. The invitation is this. In salvation, God calls Christians to demonstrate grace amid suffering and injustice. It's our salvation. This is in our call. This is who God has made us to be. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, you don't want to die and go to hell, do you? Then raise your hand and repeat this prayer after me. Listen, that is so foreign from the scripture. God is saying, if you want to live a life as a bondservant, if you want to live your life as a slave of righteousness, raise your hand and follow me. By the way, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow it after me. Be willing to give everything. He said, But I've got rights, so a slave doesn't have rights. We're submissive unto Christ Jesus and all that he calls us to, including the authorities that he's placed over our life, believing that he will reward us faithfully for our obedience, both today and in the future. I was reading John MacArthur's commentary on this section, and it moved me, and I thought I'd just share just a couple of sentences that he wrote. As soon as the Holy Spirit calls people from darkness to light, they become an enemy of the world and a target of unjust and unfair attack as they seek to obey Christ. Paul told Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, here's what he's saying. You know why your boss treats you that way? Number one, your boss's heart probably is not regenerated, does not have the residency of the Holy Spirit. Is not given to the word. Right? That's, that's on the table, right? But if your boss is unsaved, the reason why he or she treats you the way that he or she does is because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And the aroma that you admit is a stinking smell to them. For some who are emitting the aroma of righteousness, it is a sweet smell. And for others, it is the stench of death. What does the scripture mean when it says that? It's meaning it's you are a reminder that they are spiritually dead under the judgment of God and forever separated from him. You're a reminder of that. Now, for somebody who is reminded of that, they will come against you. And here's what you and I are learning in this text and others. God is watching God sees that. God will reward you. He will will give you the reward for the one who is faithful. Stay the course. Just keep presenting Christ. Keep letting the nature of the Spirit come forth in you. Stay focused on Jesus. He is going to bring everything to bear. He will account for everything. So why does it honor and please God to see us responding in grace to people who treat us unjustly or unfairly? It's because it's our call. It is our vocation, and it pleases God to see us walk in that. Now, look, this idea of godly suffering just flies in the face of false teachers who are on TBN. It's just completely opposed to what they preach, and the prosperity and the health and the wellness that they proclaim comes in salvation. And I guess in some way they're right that health and prosperity and and blessings and 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 all that wellness that it comes they've just got the wrong kingdom in mind it's going to come in a kingdom that is yet to be brought forth in a physical way it's not for today the call of salvation for today is a call of suffering you you are a bright light to people who love darkness and that causes suffering You are truth to people who love lies, and that causes suffering. You are a representative of the Most High God that demands all people acknowledge and be thankful to Him and be submissive to Him. And because you represent Him, it will cause you suffering. Jesus said, stay focused. Keep your eye on me. Listen to my call. Come under the submissiveness of the call, and you will represent me well. Again, the Apostle Paul, this time in Philippians chapter 3, writes these words, which will be our closing words. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you're thinking about suffering, you will not find a better poster child for suffering than the Apostle Paul. I mean, he, he gave out suffering before he came to Christ. He was a great persecutor against the church. He brought more havoc and pain and suffering and death on the church than any man that I, well, I shouldn't say any man that I would know about, but there are others. Uh, he was up there on the scale. So he was a persecutor, and when he was saved, you know what God told him? I'm going to save you so that you will know the fellowship of suffering. You're going to be persecuted your entire walk with me. We are not any different. Paul says, I count everything at a loss. I I would just say everything in my life is a loss as long as I have this great surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus. So the blessed life, the healthy life, the prosperous life, all that, he says it's a loss. And I'm okay with that because I know Christ. I know him well. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That's where you are. If you're in a tough situation in your workplace. And God has not given you the freedom to go somewhere else then you are on a path to press on to the prize of the upper call of God in you. What is that upper call? It's your salvation, and in your salvation, your call is to be with Christ and to represent him in the place that he puts you. So some of you are in difficult relationships in your family. Press on to the prize of the upper call of God in you. Some of you are in difficult relationships in the workplace, and maybe it's your boss Maybe it's your employee that's driving you crazy. Press on to the prize of the upper call of God in you. And what is that? That you would have the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his spirit dwelling within you and you would walk step in step with him as he is nurturing you with his word and trusting one day it will forever be reset and there will be a new heaven and a new earth that will never be touched or affected by sin and there will never be a person that will come against you or Christ ever again press on. It's our call, it's our vocation through the difficulties to have a singular purpose and that is to know and to gain knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the trial of your workplace, you will gain in your insight to Jesus and the suffering that he endured and the fellowship that you have with him will be so rich and so good, now I want your workplace to be a great place. I I wish you all could experience the atmosphere that we have working here at this church, but I realize that we're in a bubble and your experiences can be very different. When you endure, God is smiling, God is writing, God is paying attention and God is with you, press on. Help us, Lord, in that, that we might represent Christ well and grow in our knowledge of him and the fellowship that we have with him. We trust you, our sovereign God, who has placed all people in authoritative positions. We trust you that you're doing something great, even in the midst of the crises. Like Joseph in the prison for all those years, for his enslavement all those years, even subject to the Pharaoh, when he was in the high-ranking position, Joseph trusted you, that you were bringing about a greater good. We recognize, Lord, that all things work in that way for those who are following hard after you. So help us by your spirit to do so. For those who are in the most challenging positions in their workplace, God, I pray that you would pour out the measure of grace necessary for them to thrive. And that they would grow in their relationship with you, with fellow saints. And for those of us who can make a difference in the life of people who are under our leadership, help us to represent Jesus well. We pray it would bring glory to him. In his name we pray.